You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 this is Tiffany, the budget nista Alice, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. I knew almost nothing about money. You see, I had grown up in a family with financially savvy parents. And although I watched them own property and run businesses and invest and save, we never really had a lot of conversations about it. As I went to medical school and became a doctor, I always told myself that I was too busy to deal with such things. So I hired someone to manage the money for me. And I knew almost nothing. In my mid-40s, as I was getting tired of medicine, a book came in the mail, The White Coat Investor by Jim Dolly. And after reading that book, sitting down for a few hours, all of a sudden, it clicked. And I'd realized that my mindset had been such that I always thought it was too difficult or too complicated for me to understand, but it wasn't. You see... I was financially broken, and only after spending enough time digesting that book and then studying a little on my own did I become whole. So I'm wondering if it's the same for you. Are you financially broken? And if so, how are you going to learn how to be whole once again? And speaking of financial wholeness, where can you go to have more of these impactful conversations about your money and your life? Well, I invite you to check out our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Over there, we have conversations very similar to the podcast episodes. But they involve you, the community. It is a place to ask questions, discuss articles. We cover the gamut, everything from personal finance to the economy, and occasionally we even talk about politics. Come join our community, be part of the Earn and Invest Facebook group, and tell us what's on your mind. That is at facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Come join our community. Tiffany Aliche, also known as the Budget Nista, is an award-winning teacher of financial education and an Amazon best-selling author. Her latest book, Get Good With Money, 10 Simple Steps to Becoming Financially Whole, dropped at the end of March. Tiffany, such a pleasure to have you on Earn and Invest. Thank you for having me, Dr. G. I'm excited. 
I am so excited to have you here. I'm going to do something cruel here. I want to start with your story of your fall. So let's Mm -hmm. go back to your 20s. You had gotten a job as a teacher, saved Mm -hmm. up $40,000. You Mm -hmm. had bought a new condo and had a credit score in the 800s. And then it went downhill. Tell us about this character you call JTT and how he added to your downfall. So, yes, Jake the Thief, the famous Jake. That's, of course, not his name, but I'm sure he'll recognize himself if he can read books from jail. (laughs) So, So what happened was I was financially perfect. Like you, Dr. G, I grew up in a household where my parents talked about money or they were good with their money. But for me, they talked about it. They they taught my sisters about it. And I, and until like my mid twenties, uh, I was financially perfect. You know, I got the great credit score, saved money, even though I wasn't making a ton of money as a teacher, I knew how to budget and save. And then like so many of us in our twenties, we decide that we are fully adults and we are fully adults, but we're not fully formed adults because I decided I no longer wanted to take financial advice from people who knew more than me, <laughs> that I was going to strike out on my own. And so instead of listening to my CFO father with two degrees in finance, one in finance and his master's in economics, that I could, I knew better. So I reached out to a friend of mine who I'd known for five years, Jake. And I was young enough to believe that because you had nice things, that meant you actually had money. And I didn't realize that people could live off credit and, you know, can buy cars with very little down. So Jake had really nice things. And I thought, he's wealthy. How did he get wealthy? Maybe he can teach me. So I asked him if he could teach me and he said, sure. And first things first, he said, you have to use other people's money to invest. I didn't know in the long run, he meant mine to invest for himself. (laughs) And so (laughs) he told me, do you have any credit cards? And I did. I only had one. And my father had, I got it in college, just like my father instructed me to. I paid it off every month in full, just like my father had instructed me to. But Jake was like, no, not only should you use that credit card, but you should open up to others and pull money off. I didn't even know you could do that. It's called a cash advance and it's the worst thing you can do, but I didn't know. And so I was like, really? He said, yes, pull money off those credit cards and we're going to take that money and we're going to invest it. What he meant was I'm going to take that money and I'm going to run with it. So I literally took $20,000 in cash off this credit card and you would have thought that I would have had red, you know, like like the flashing lights would have gone off because there were so many instances where I'm like, this doesn't quite seem right. So I remember distinctly going to um, one of the banks in particular, and they actually asked me if I was okay. Because here I was like mid-20s sitting there. And at the time I was a preschool teacher. And as a preschool teacher, they didn't want you to have to worry about your clothes playing with the kids. So we used to have to wear scrubs. So here I am with my teddy bear scrubs on. <laughs> pull out thousands of dollars from this card I just opened. So they thought I was being held hostage. They kept asking me all these questions. Literally, it was like, warning, warning. And I ignored them all. I took the money out, happy, like, I've got my money. Jake was waiting for me outside. We'd signed some, you know, ramshackle contract. And the way it was supposed to work was that Jake was originally from Paris, France. Who knows if that's true? But that's what he said. And that he owned a number of stores. Who knows if that was true? That's what he said. And in France, just like here in in the U.S., that things that are French go for more because, you know, they're less common. But they love like Converse and 
Levi's jeans and we were going to purchase all these American brand things for less and then sell them for more in France where he was. So he was going to use the money to purchase it, ship it to France. And then in his stores, it should generate me about $2,100 a week, a week for two years. So here I was like, oh my gosh, yes. It sounds so ridiculous now, but I was in my 20s. So that was like, it was going to come out to be for a $20,000 investment. If you really do the math, it's like $200,000. I mean, uh, yes. And I was like, should I tell my father with the economics degree and the finance degree? No, why should I do that? It's going to be a surprise. (laughs) I love while reading the book, I'm sitting here and you're describing this and I'm yelling at the book. I'm going, no, Tiffany, no. I know. And so I gave him the money. Of course, he promptly ran away, ran away. But it took me a while to realize that he ran away because like, and I didn't realize because I had to do more research then because for a year he strung me along and um, to say like, oh, you didn't get it? Check the bank account. Let me call my bank account. And you know, it's an odd thing that these types of people that they do this because you would think that most of them would just take the money and run. But what they found is that these types of thieves will actually string you along and pretend the money was sent. I guess they get like a high off of like you actually believing them. So it took me a year to really understand, wow, I'm I'm not going to get my money. So the problem was, Dr. G, that it wasn't just that I took the 20,000 off. I was like, I'm not done making mistakes. So I was like, you know, I've never had credit cards before. I should use them. (laughs) And so I didn't use them to buy like clothes or anything like that. But I thought, well, I'm going to be rich soon. And I think I should want to start a business. And so there was a financial guru out at that time. I won't name them, but they had this program that they would walk you through starting your own business. And for the small fee of $15,000, you too could be a millionaire. And so I was like, you know what? I still have room on my credit cards. So within a few days, I went from zero credit card debt to $35,000 in credit card debt. And if that wasn't bad enough, it was because he strung me along for a year, I didn't quite get that I wasn't going to get my money back. And then when I realized it, that's when the recession hit and I lost my job. So all of a sudden now, here I was a new homeowner for a condo. I had just finished my master's in education. So now I owe 50, $52,000 in credit and in student loan debt. I now have this credit card debt of $35,000, no million dollar business and no investments <laughs> money coming in. And now my job as a school teacher is gone because we were a nonprofit-based school and uh, we lost our funding because the big corporations that used to fund us didn't have the money. So I went from financially perfect to a financial, a whole financial mess in a matter of a few years. And it was devastating, but it was really then as I started to rebuild myself that I really built the budget NISA because I... I use like what I learned. There's no real learning, like learning it for yourself. You know, I was always that kid, honestly. My parents would always say that, like, it's not enough to say, Tiffany, the oven's hot. I have to touch the oven and burn my hand, third degree burns. And I'm like, you know what? I think the oven's hot. (laughs) So so that's exactly what it was. And so I will say, because people always ask me about Jake. And a few years ago, I was curious about him. He's got a very unique name. So I Googled it. And I guess I wasn't the only person that he was trying to scam, he tried to scam the federal government. And unlike me, the federal government can track you down. And they did. So now he's sitting in jail. So I did get a little bit of a like, "Eh, you know what, you scammed the wrong person. So I don't know if he's still in jail. That was a couple of years ago. But 
he just was a scam artist across the board. And I used to lament over it and be like, why? But I'm actually really grateful for it now because me just doing what my parents told me to do, I didn't learn any real lessons from that. You know, certainly it was a great foundation, but me having to dig my way out of all the financial mess that I created, I lost my house due to foreclosure because I couldn't afford the mortgage during the recession, having to figure out how to replace my income, how to figure out how to manage my my student loan debt, how to figure out how to manage that credit card debt. All of that were the amazing lessons that I built the Budgetista on and the amazing lessons that I wrote Get Good With Money, my new book on. Yeah, we're going to get to those lessons in a moment, but I just want to make it clear, like we skipped a little between Jake and the budget Nista. Mm-hmm. You pretty much got ended up breaking up with a significant boyfriend. Your house mm-hmm. went into foreclosure. You moved back into your parents' house. Yes. You're 30 years old. You kind of got to this financial bottom. And what's more interesting than that is how you turned it around. Tell us about the conversation you had with your friend, Linda, because to me, I'm thinking at that place you were at, how did you turn it around? So it was really the bottom of the bottom. I remember I was avoiding all my friends Um, right before I moved home. My parents, I wasn't like washing dishes. I wasn't cleaning up my car. I just, it was just a really dark place because I just thought that human beings have this weird thing that when things are really bad, we think there will always be bad. And when things are really good, we think that they'll always be good. We forget that there are cycles, you know? And so I just thought that everything was always going to be bad. And I'd moved home. Like, I didn't even want to tell my dad I was moving home. I literally every week, because I only lived like maybe like 10 minutes from my parents. So every week I would like bring something. I told my mom I would bring something home and he'd be like, oh, you're leaving your lamp here? I'm like, yeah, I'm leaving my lamp. <laughs> you know? <laughs> bit by bit, you just kept yeah. leaving things. <laughs> and finally he was like, wait, are you home? I was like, just for a little bit. A little bit turned into a year. I was 29 going on 30. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I hit rock bottom that you're going to be 30 years old in your middle school bed, you know, still having to, to deal with the same. Cause my parents are pretty strict. They're like, the rules are the same, whether you're 19, 13 or 29. Like I still have to be home at midnight. Can you imagine 29 years old? <laughs> my dad did not want to hear that. He's like, I don't care. There's nothing in those streets past midnight. So it was really bad. And then I was, I had been avoiding my best friend, Linda for some months, almost a year. And so finally she got me on the phone and she asked me what was wrong. And I was going to, you know, lie and tell her everything was fine. I was just busy, but I just couldn't keep up the pretense any longer. And I just started boohooing on the phone and I told her, you know, I lost my job. I lost my condo. I moved back home. I told her about credit card debt. I told her everything. And her reaction really shocked me. And she just started laughing like, is that it? And I thought, I mean, what more do you need? (laughs) She was just like, you've been hiding like you killed somebody, you know, like you just, you're hiding from the law. And she was like, Tiffany, I don't know if you realize that most of our friends lost our jobs. We've all had credit card debt since, since college. You were the only one who didn't have credit card debt. So welcome to the party and you being in financial ruin. That's the rest of us as well. And I was so focused on self. I didn't really look around and realize like the world was falling down financially. You know, it was the great recession, just like now what we're going through with pandemic and quarantine that there are a great number of people that are struggling financially. Even if we weren't going through recession, there still are a great number of people struggling. And it was the first time that I kind of looked up and realized, you know what, you're not alone in this. And she gave me, she really gave me what I needed to get rid of the shame. 
Because shame, unfortunately, is a liar. It's a very powerful emotion. Shame doesn't say, Tiffany, you made a mistake. Shame said, Tiffany, you are a mistake. Shame thrives in shadow. It thrives in silence. And so when I kept everything to myself, shame got stronger and stronger and stronger. And me telling Linda all of my shame, because the only antidote to shame is voice. Me telling Linda all my shame gave me voice and push shame to the side. And then I realized, wow, there are solutions, you know, like, because shame also shields you from solutions. And then I realized I have a really good foundation. You know how to budget, you know how to save, you know how to dig your way out of debt. You know how to live frugally, temporarily, you learn these things. And so I started to activate them. And what I found was those friends who were also struggling alongside of me that I'd been ignoring all that time, they were like, Hey, Tiffany, You know, Linda said that, you know, that you've been like helping her with her budget. Can you help me? And I was like, sure. Hey, Tiffany, Linda said that you're helping her get out of debt because you're doing yours. Can you help me? And I said, sure. And so that's how I started to build the Budgetista. It was friends then friends of friends. And then before you knew it, it was people I didn't know. You know, it would be like a, a friend of a friend of a friend. And one of my friends at the time told me, you know, you've been helping a lot of people. Why don't you start charging? And I was like, could you do that? And she was like, I mean, you're not making any other money other than unemployment, so you might as well try. So I started to charge for one-on-ones, like 50 bucks to sit down for like four hours, basically babysitting money. But it was proof of concept for me that people wanted this information. And during that time when I was home, because my dad was like, when I get up to go to work, you have to get up to go somewhere. Like you can't just sit here. And so I used to get up to go volunteer. So I did a lot of volunteer work and I found myself teaching financial education wherever I volunteered. Like I'd be at the Boys and Girls Club and I'd be teaching the kids how to budget or I'd be at the United Way and I'd be showing someone how to save. And the United Way extended me a contract and said, hey, we we just got this big grant from a bank and the bank wants to give it to the community, but they want the community to have education first. Do you have a curriculum? Because we see you always here, you know, teaching financial education to the community for free. Do you have a curriculum? And I was like, yeah, I did not. (laughs) But I did have my (laughs) master's and I knew how to write a curriculum. I just had never developed a financial curriculum. So I was like, well, I'm going to do one now. They're like, okay, send us a proposal in a week and, you know, let's see, we'll give you the contract. I was like, proposal. Yes. I was like, I don't know how to create one of those. (laughs) So I actually literally tweeted, help, someone help me make a proposal. And I remember uh, distinctly that there was a woman, her name was Michelle Mm. Thomas, I'll never forget. And Michelle was the um, communications director of the city where I lived. But when I used to volunteer, I used to tweet and use social media to round up other volunteers to come with me. So she said, I love what you're doing in my city. I see all the volunteer work you've done. So I'm going to give something to you. Send me what you have and I'll put it in proposal form. And I was like, great. So I sent her like all my curriculum and all this stuff. And she put it in proposal form. I submitted it to the United Way and they said yes. And I remember I couldn't believe they agreed to pay me $500 per class, which I was like, what? You know, going from like unemployment where I was making maybe 1500 bucks a month. Now this was, I taught class once a week. So now it's $500 a week coming in. And I was able to move out of my parents' house and I was able to rent a room. A girlfriend of mine had found this really cute brownstone downtown in the city of Newark where I lived. And she's like, basically it was empty. It it was almost like in like a teacher's village where like a lot of students and teachers lived. That's why it was so inexpensive. And she's like, look, the brownstone has 
four rooms and I found like two other teachers to stay here with me. If you want the other room, it's 500 bucks a month. It includes all utilities. So I went from having my own condo to renting a room with a bunch of other like teachers and women. And, but honestly, it was awesome because my expenses were super low, obviously, and it allowed me to build. And the United Way was within walking distance because who had gas money? And so I, I started the budget Nista with that contract with the United Way. And it went from 500 bucks a week to a thousand bucks a week because I started to do two classes to 1500 bucks a week because I started to do three classes a week. And I did that for like two or three years until I started teaching like at colleges because word would get out. You know, I started teaching at colleges and speaking at different organizations and the budgetista really started to grow. So let's talk about that curriculum, because from those beginning days to the publishing of the book, Get Good With Money, 10 Simple Steps to Becoming Financially Whole, you've really created a curriculum for the beginner Mm -hmm. to start this process. Let's talk about financial wholeness. Mm -hmm. Can anyone become financially whole? And what exactly does that mean? Yes. Financial wholeness is literally for everyone because the reason why I came up with financial wholeness is because I noticed that folks were going toward, and which is nothing wrong with, with financial freedom, right? They were like, okay, you know, I want to attain um, financial freedom, you know, in my twenties, in my thirties. And although some people will attain financial freedom early, but most people won't attain financial freedom at least until retirement, if they achieve it at all. But what I love about financial wholeness is that anyone, no matter what stage they're in life, no matter how much they make, what they do for a living, can achieve financial wholeness. And financial wholeness is a 10-step plan for finding peace, safety, and harmony with your money, no matter how big or small your goals, no matter how rocky the market, no matter what you do for a living, no matter how much you make. It is when the 10 components, these 10 core components of your financial life come together to create the most solid financial foundation that you can build any financial house on. And we're going to talk about those 10 components in a minute, but I just wanted to note something you said fairly stunned me. You said in your book, you felt more financially whole when you were that early 20s teacher before everything went bad compared to when you were running the budget Nista and making thousands and thousands a month mm-hmm. yet felt more disconnected from your money. So financial wholeness is not necessarily about your having a certain net worth or making a certain amount of money. Agreed. Yes. Because before I messed everything up, when I was in my early 20s, you know, like I, I had, you know, I had a budget, I had a savings plan. I had insurance. I I checked off all the boxes because like I said, I was just listening to what my parents told me, but I wasn't scared because I knew I had the strong financial foundation until I just threw it all away. But when the budget needs to started to do well, I didn't realize it, but I understand now I was, I was um, shell shocked and I was struggling from post-traumatic brokenness syndrome, if you will, (laughs) you know, that I was terrified and afraid. So because I'd messed up with that one investing opportunity, I just was saving. I refused to invest, even though I knew logically, Tiffany, your money is not growing in your savings account. I'm like, I don't care. It was the equivalent of me putting money under my mattress because I was so terrified. So I was nowhere near financial wholeness. I wasn't properly insured. I didn't have any health insurance. These are components of financial wholeness. And that fear was because I didn't have a strong foundation like I did in my early 20s. So it's possible for you to have a ton of money and not be financially whole. And it's possible for you to have way less money and be financially whole. That's why I love about financial wholeness. It's accessible to everyone and inclusive no matter where you are in life. 
Let's talk about those 10 steps or 10 lessons. They are budget building, save like a squirrel, dig out of debt, score high credit, learn to earn, invest like an insider, get good with insurance, increase your net worth, pick your money team, and leave a legacy. I'm just interested which chapter and which lesson were hardest for you to write. And, and what do you think is hardest for your readers? So the chapter that was hardest for me to write probably was the investing chapter because I struggle with how far to take it. Like, we're not going to talk options, you know? <laughs> and I didn't want to get, I, I didn't want to leave out people who wanted to go to the next level. It was really hard for me to figure out a core plan that can fit a more savvy investor, but also someone who is a, a super beginner. And so I decided to split. That's the only chapter that's split into two, right? So the first half of investing like an insider focuses on retirement, and the second half of investing like an insider focuses on investing for wealth. And once I really conceptualized that I was going to split the chapters, it was it became much easier because people people one don't think that retirement is investing. It is, you know. Everyone thinks about ret- uh, investing like, oh, you know, one day I'll be living on an island somewhere. Well, if you want to live on an island somewhere, that's investing for wealth. That investing for retirement is so that you can maintain your current lifestyle. That is the purpose of investing for retirement. The purpose of investing for wealth is to increase your current lifestyle now and to leave a legacy for for like your heirs. When you're saving for investing for retirement, that's for you for later. Investing for, for wealth is for now and for other people as well. And so once I started to like break through to that, then it, it made that chapter like a joy to, to go through. And I think people are gonna, especially those who are just starting on their investment journey, I think it's really going to help them to really understand what kind of investor they are and what kind of path they need to choose and how to set in an almost almost semi-forget it. The reason why I asked if what was the most difficult for you to write, because I wonder if it also mirrors your experience with your readers, that the investing portion actually is what people get stuck on more than some of the other lessons. Yes, because investing has always been held up to be the complicated, like messy thing. Like the fact, Dr. G, that you went to medical school and you said to yourself, as smart as you are, you know what? Medical school, eight years, easy peasy. Money, oh no, 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 that's crazy. You know, I tell people that all the time, like I'll, I'll have, I'll know like a mom, like who has like four kids and they're like, Ooh, money so hard. I'm like, really? You have four kids. There's nothing harder than raising children. If you can manage to raise four human beings, believe me, money is easy. What I find with people, Dr. G and money is that it's not a capability issue. It's a confidence issue. And for sure, the thing that people have the least amount of confidence in is definitely investing. Yeah, I I definitely found that in my own path. I'm going to jump around here a little throughout the lessons. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this idea of what's more important, saving or earning in your overall trajectory. So I wouldn't say one is more important than the other, but I think that so many people focus on saving and then forget earning that you know, there are, there are like two schools of thoughts. There are people who are like, earn, 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 but they don't understand that you can actually outspend your earning, you know, but I find that to be almost the minority. Most people, when they start in their investment journey, over-focus on the saving and getting rid of debt. 
And they don't realize that if you earn a little bit more, you can make that part of your journey a little bit lighter and a little bit easier. So I really try to help people strike a balance between learning to earn and then being responsible and saving some of that earnings for both goals and for investing. Yeah, I think people also get stuck with the idea or don't realize that, you know, earning can be somewhat unlimited, but mm-hmm. saving is definitely limited. There's only definitely so much limited. you can cut and live a reasonable life. Exactly, exactly. And I really don't believe, and I say that in the book, I'm like, I know people hear me and I say I'm the budget nista, but I don't believe in over-sacrifice. If, if it takes you $10 to save for this thing, why are you saving 20 Use the other 10 to enjoy and just save the $10 to save for this thing. Because I think that over-sacrificing is why a lot of people don't want to budget, don't want to do the financial fundamentals because they see it as lack, you know? And I'm like, no, that achieving financial wholeness and, and working on your financial fundamentals is really where you can find your abundance in money. Yeah. And, and part of that abundance and realizing financial wholeness, I guess, is also realizing that you're supposed to enjoy your money, right? That's yes. part of it. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the sense of, of making sense it of and it, saving yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here's another one I come up against quite often. And it seems like we have a few different goals, right? One is, for instance, investing for retirement. Another is paying off the debt. Can yes. you do them both at the same time? Or do you should you take kind of one step at a time? First, pay off your debt, then start investing. No, I, I say do both. I know a lot of people, and it hurts my heart when I hear folks have listened to someone that says, do not set aside for retirement until you're debt-free. But what if you're not debt-free until 65? What if you're not debt-free until 50? You cannot get back the money lost from compounded interest by not retiring as early or not setting aside for retirement as early as possible. So compounding interest is earning money on your money. So you have a dollar and you're earning 10%. So now that dollar is now a dollar 10. Then that dollar 10 you're going to earn interest on the dollar and the 10%. So now it's a dollar 11. So now you're going to earn money on the dollar and the 10 and the 1%. That's compounding interest is when you earn money on your money. And so I don't think people understand that, that the magic of compounding interest is time. And so if you, if you, you can never get back time It's not like you can go back into when you're 12 and be like, okay, let's start this thing all over again. So what I encourage people to do is I encourage people to think of what I call their old person self. So that's like your 80 year old self. So my 80 year old self, I name her Wanda, you know, because there was a study that was done that finds that people don't, people did not set aside for retirement because they felt disassociated from their elder self. So I said, well, why don't we lean into it? Let's make your elder self a separate person that you care about deeply, almost like your your own grandmother, you know? So like Wanda is like, I think of her as like Grandma Tiffany, right? And I think to myself, as I make choices now, let's just say if I'm looking at paying off debt, do I prioritize getting rid of all my debt? But if I do that over investing for in retirement, what is Wanda going to eat? Where's Wanda going to sleep? You know, like if your grandmother actually lived with you and you had to make a choice, like I've got debt, but I also have to take care of my grandmother that's living with me, you would do both. And that's what I encourage people to do. So definitely focus on paying down your high interest debt first or your lowest balance first, because I I like people to have early success by using the snowball method. But at the same time, not investing for wealth, that's different, but not forgetting to invest for retirement as well, because eventually, hopefully, we'll all get to be Wanda's age and you want to be prepared for that. 
Yeah, I like the way you've really broken up the investing for wealth versus investing for retirement. It makes a lot of sense to me that you should be investing for retirement as you're paying off debt, mm-hmm. whereas maybe investing for wealth you would Can put wait. off yes. until you manage your debt. Yes. In the first half of the show, Tiffany and I discuss her personal history and delve into her book, Get Good With Money. After the break, we discuss credit. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Do you ever wish you invested early in some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Professional VC research identifies promising companies and funds across a range of sectors, stages, and global locations. Our crowd is investing in medical technology, breakthroughs in ag tech and food production, solutions in the multi-billion dollar robotic industry, and so much more. You can learn more and get in early at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The our crowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. Let's talk about credit. I I think getting good with your credit is a chapter I learned a lot from because I think most of us just don't understand credit and how it works. How important is having good credit and knowing how to affect it? Well, here's the thing. In the United States of America, honestly, your credit is actually more powerful than the money that you have in your bank because with credit, you can leverage so much more. So people don't realize, like, think about a lever, like a door is an example of a lever, This little tiny doorknob can swing this huge door. And that's what credit is. It's like you can have a little bit of money to have access to a whole lot of money. It's the reason why you can put down 3.5% for a whole house, you know, for 100% of house. So with credit, obviously you want to have money in the bank, but you want to maintain a decent credit score. And something I I want people to, to understand about credit is one, I tell people focus on your FICO. There are other credit scores like the Vantage score, but FICO, for the most part right now, is the score that most creditors are, are, are going to be looking at. And if you honestly have a good FICO score, you probably have good scores across the board. So that's one. FICO ranges from 300 to 850. I know a lot of people that really make a big deal about trying to get into the 800 club. I don't care about the 800 club because the beginning of perfect credit starts at 740. 
So as long as you get over 740, so I tell people, try to stay in the 760, 770 range. Once you get there, the same interest that's afforded to those 800 people, you're going to get it too. You're all getting A's and A starts at 740. So with credit, once you understand that basic component that like, okay, if I get myself a 740 or better, if I can maintain that, if I I can maintain a decent credit score or, or aim for a decent credit score by keeping my debt low in, compa- in comparison to what I could owe. So meaning that if you have a credit card, whatever your balance is compared to your limit, people don't realize that like they think like, oh, I've got a hundred dollar credit card. As long as I stay under a hundred dollars, I'm fine. Know that your utilization rate, the the highest utilization rate, meaning how much balance you have on that limit, should really not go above thirty percent. Anything above that, you're really bringing down your score. If you want to see your score raise, you want to keep your utilization under like five percent. And so, once people don't, when when someone says, "I'm I pay my bills on time." I'm never late. My credit score is not moving. It's almost always their utilization. I'm like, you're using more than 30% on the debt that's been allotted to you. If you keep get that utilization low, you'll see your credit score jump. But this, this is why I like credit so much because of all the other, like the steps for financial wholeness, you have to have at least a little bit of discipline. But with credit, it's literally tips and tricks. You know, like you can become, my father did this for me. I was an authorized user on his card. And so I was able to inherit his good credit card behavior. I don't need to be disciplined. I just needed to know somebody who had good credit card behavior. You can raise your credit score by paying off a little bill every single month in full on your credit card. So I have a credit card specifically that I keep to the side and I put my Netflix bill on that card and then I pay it off every month in full. Because credit bureaus love when you pay off a debt in full, the amount doesn't matter. $5,000, $500,000, looks the same if you pay it off every month in full. And so credit is a lot of tips and tricks and not as much discipline. So I like credit a lot because people tend to stress over credit the most and not realizing it's actually the easiest of the, of the financial wholeness steps to affect. So let's go from something you like to something that at least most of us don't like discussing <laughs> Insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, are most people under or overinsured in your Most experience? people are definitely underinsured. I was underinsured as I was working through the chapter. So what I did with the chapters that were not my expertise, I pulled in experts and I called them my budget needs to boosters. Because I also think that it's important that I model good behavior. I don't believe in listening to one person for all things. Like you're a doctor, right? So I'm not going, the same doctor that I would go to my dentist for a toothache is not the same doctor I would go to when I had rotator cuff surgery. It's not the same. You have, you have specialties, right, in medicine, but you also have specialties in finance. And I think that having a general financial person is fine, but you should also be leaning in to people who have expertise in different subject matters in finance. And so I did that in the book. And so for the, for the insurance chapter, I leaned into my personal CFP, my certified financial planner, Anjali. And I said, now I know the insurances that people should have, like health insurance, life insurance, you know, renter's insurance or, or, or homeowner's insurance or car insurance, you know, but can you explain to me like how best to seek them out? What, what should they look for? And so as we were doing them, I realized that I was underinsured, that the insurance policies that I had were what I got in my 20s. And she's like, Tiffany, you're 41 now, like you're married, you have a home, 
and another rental property and a stepdaughter and nieces and nephews, you are underinsured. And I thought, wow, if I'm underinsured, I had no idea. I didn't think about it. How many other people may be underinsured? And so even sometimes you don't even realize how policies, how much policies cost. I remember she said, where you are now in life, I would feel comfortable. I want you to get an additional million dollar policy, an umbrella policy, you know, so that way, if you've maxed out your current insurances, that it would level up to your umbrella policy. I was like, a million dollar policy? That's going to cost me like thousands of dollars. It was $400 a year. I was like, oh, you know, (laughs) so that's why this kind of conversation is important to have because you know, you might be like, oh, I'm so good at, at, at finance, but like you might realize like, wait, am I am I properly insured? Let me look at Tiffany's checklist. You know, like I might need additional insurance and it might not be as much as you think. So that was definitely a chapter that I found a lot of value like internally for myself to making sure that I'm fully insured. Actually, Anjali called me today and was like, hey, Tiffany, you know, I just looked at your insurance policy and we can switch you to another provider and it'll save you $3,000 a year. So <laughs> yes, having... So that leads me to the other chapter about like having financial experts, like your your money team, like that's critically important because I would never know that by myself. Yeah, two things here, you know, I, I feel like the umbrella policy is like the super secret <laughs> trick. Like if you know someone and you look at their insurance profile and you find umbrella policy, then like, okay, that person knows what they're doing. Yes. <laughs> you talked about Anjali, the experts that helped you write this book. Mm-hmm. But it definitely begs another question about the place our money pros play in our life. Mm-hmm. You know, I started my pathway in personal finance in the financial independence retire early community. And there mm-hmm. is a huge concentration on DIY, doing yes. it yourself. Can you do some of this yourself? I mean, you mentioned you have a certified financial planner, mm-hmm. you have an insurance person, I'm sure you have an attorney, an accountant. Mm-hmm. You know, can you do some of this stuff yourself? Is it worthwhile? Yes, absolutely. You could do almost all of it yourself, really. You know, it just depends on if you are willing to do the work and set aside time for it. There's nothing that almost nothing that you can you can't do yourself. I will say probably the only space where you're going to need an insurance agent, even if you don't have a certified financial planner, because if you're going to buy insurance, you're going to need like a broker and agent to buy insurance through. You know, so even it might be just a digital online platform, you know, but the only place where it really is not DIY or wouldn't suggest it is estate planning. You know, that's the only place where I'd be like, no, investing, yes, retirement, you could do that yourself. Like I said, even insurance with the help of like a policy genius and things like that, you can get yourself together. Although those those little tricks that you might not realize the umbrella policy, you know, that's the kind of advice that you get sometimes when you have a little bit more of a personal touch. But in estate planning, mm -mm mm-mm-mm. I would not use, unless you're 20, you know, I would not use one of those like DIY, like, you know, I remember like Suze Orman was like, I, I like, I got it. It was like for free. She was like on Oprah and I was like 21 and it was like, Hey, sign up to get your free, your free will or whatever. Meanwhile, I was 21 with no assets, you know, but I signed up for that. And that's okay when you're like super young and you really don't have anything, but really if you have children at the very least, you need a will. You know, at the very, 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 very least, because underage children, I'll say that, you know, not if your child is 30, that's different. But if you have children under the age of really like 18, then you want to have a will because you want that, God forbid, something happened to you, that you have that what you want for your children actually happens. And that's not something that you want to do willy nilly. You want to make sure that it's done properly 
that is done legally within your state's parameters. And so that's the only place where I would say do not DIY it. Definitely seek help. Before I learned about personal finances, the thing that scared me most is investing. After I've learned quite a bit about personal <laughs> finance, the thing that scares me most is estate planning. Yes. The big question that always comes up, which people hope for a simple answer is, is, do I need a will or trust? Is there an easy answer to that question? There is. So it, you definitely need a will if you have children. That's how you know, right? But if you don't, you don't, well, and I will say this, if you have assets, you know, then I say that. If your assets are in the six figures, I would say you're wanting to have a will because without a will, you know, you don't want family and friends to have to struggle and tussle over who, you know, who gets what and where and how. And with a trust, so Tony Moore, who is my attorney, she's the budget, he's the booster for that chapter. So her, her kind of rule of thumb for trusts are if you have a net worth of $100,000 plus, you should consider, you can start to consider a trust. If you have a net worth of $500,000, you have assets of $500,000 plus, you should definitely have a trust. So $100,000, maybe. Oh, you're at five? Definitely, definitely. Because the way a trust works is that a trust is like a person. So when you pass away, you know, and unless, you know, you're a vampire, it's all going to happen to everyone, <laughs> you know, then your your money, when, when money changes hands from person to another person, when you pass away, there's probate. And that's just best, basically when they get to go through all your business. And then there are huge, hefty fees and taxes to be paid, right? Because this person is gone and this person is receiving. But with a trust, the trust is like a person, you know, so if you put your things into a trust, trust don't die. So there's never this pass from person to person probate where they get to probe through your things. People get ringside to like all your stuff, you know, so with a trust, you put your stuff in there. And then the people who are part of the trust, they never have to worry. You can add people to that trust. You never have to worry about about that happening. And so that's why having, if you have $500,000 worth of assets or that's your net worth or, or above, you're wanting a trust because you're wanting, that's a lot of money to lose. Sometimes that death tax can be like 50%, you know? So you don't want to be worth, you know, a hundred million dollars, like poor Prince, you know, the millions and millions of dollars he was worth. And Prince really gave a lot back to like music schools because music obviously was a huge uh, part of his life. And so when he passed away, his, his closest living relative, I believe, was his sister. But what if he didn't want his money to go to his sister? We don't know. You know, what if he wanted his money to go to these music schools that he that he patronized? And what if she decides not to give money anymore to these music schools? So with a with a will and a trust, you get to say what happens to your estate, what happens to your assets, and it allows you to save money and embarrassment from having all of your stuff laid bare for probate court. I feel like if there was an 11th commandment, it should be <laughs> avoid probate at all costs. Yes, yes, it is. Because here's the thing about probate too. So let's just say that you are in a long-term relationship with someone, but you're not married, you know, and you've been living with your significant other for 15 years and, you know, you pass away, but they're not your legal partner and your family, you might be estranged from your family. You have not spoken to your mother in 15 years. You have not spoken to your father, siblings, but because you are not, that person is not in your will. You have don't have a trust that 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 they're added to, that they're not your legal family. So now your parents, who you have not spoken to, can now swoop in and say, "Oh, 
my son, here are my assets that now belong to us. Hey, person that I know my son loved for the last, you know, 15 years. Yeah, you're out. You know, so it's so important that you you set those things up and that you update them over time. One of the things that Tony shared with me and I shared in the book is like the last component of, of creating a will or a trust is to sign the documents. She said, Tiffany, I cannot tell you how many people have worked through creating a will or tr- months and months of work, right, with her. And then they get terrified to sign the documents. It's almost like she said, they think if they sign, they're going to drop dead the next day, you know? And so like you want to sign the documents because documents created is not the same things as documents executed. You have to execute them for them to be real. I want to transition to talk about the tone of the book in general, as well as your community. Some of the wording you used, it really felt like you were talking to a group of girlfriends. And I'm wondering if it was important specifically to talk to the women out there in the world about money. Obviously, I, I read the book and it was incredibly helpful, all the information, man, woman, whatever. I mean, I think anyone could benefit from it. But did you feel specifically like you wanted to speak to women a little bit with this information? Absolutely, because I say sis. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I noticed that. I know. And I did because you know what? Everything belongs to men. Every book is for men. Every, you know, like, and so... I wanted women to say, this is just for us. Now, obviously, to your point, there's no, like, it's not women specific as far as the financial information, because, you know, that's, that's, there's no gender that's attached to that. But I wanted women to feel pulled a little bit closer, you know, because oftentimes we've been left out of the financial conversation for so many years. And I wanted that there was a book you know, there are others, but I wanted there to add to that a book specifically that speaks to women. And so I've got a huge audience, about a million women strong, and we call ourselves dream catchers, right? And so like Beyonce has the beehive. <laughs> That's where her audience is called. And so the budgetista has the dream catchers. And I wanted dream catchers to be like, oh, Tiffany's talking to us. I always tell the men in the group, because there's always like boyfriends and husbands and just single guys who who follow and they consider themselves dream catchers as well. But I always remind them that they're a guest of a guest. You know, (laughs) and so the women love that. The men, not so much, but (laughs) the women love that. But I do that because, you know, it's almost like I want to just set a special place for women because I know that when I was struggling through my, my financial journey, that so much of what I've learned or watched, I just saw men everywhere and they weren't speaking directly to me. So yes, the the book is going to translate no matter man or woman, but I definitely have special nods to the women reading it. And I feel like this book drops at an interesting time with the pandemic recession being called a she session. There are a lot of women who lost their jobs during this downturn. A lot of women who had to stay home to take care of family members. So this is a really important message right now, I think. Yeah, super important because here's the thing that like, I was literally talking to my sister the other day. She lives in Chicago. She's got a two-year-old. She's a scientist and she's like, I was just doing a presentation and the baby's home with her because where else is her baby going to go? Her, her her husband is a doctor. He's an infectious disease doctor. She can only imagine how his, how long his days are. She's like, the baby just started screaming and she's presenting and she's like, you know, what do you do? So she had to excuse herself and take care of her daughter. And she's just like, are any of your men friends, like any of your mom friends struggling? I just feel like I'm drowning. And I said, I asked all of my mom friends and every single one of them, whether they have a little one, an older one, in between two kids, three kids, one kid, every single woman 
was like, tell your sister, I don't even, I don't even know what I'm doing most days. I don't, I'm afraid my kid is going to be behind. How do I get work done? I've got a a five-year-old and a three-year-old. How do I get work done? You know, I'm an engineer and I'm expected to get like one of my friends. She's like, honestly, I do everything at night. And now I have insomnia. I can't go to sleep. I'm sleeping two or three hours a night because I cannot do work when the kids are up. You know, they're just too little. And so the women are struggling at, at a rate that is really concerning. So many women, if they're even able, are, are leaving the job force because the, the, they're the workforce because they're just like, how can I do both? And some women don't have the luxury of leaving the workforce. Like I have to bring income into the household in order to take care of my family. So it's really, it's troubling, but I do hope that this book will help to be like a guiding light, you know, to help women navigate that journey, that they're not alone. Something else that I really am proud of is that when I talk about my dream catchers, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but inside the book, but also in general, I invite people to join our Facebook group. It's called Dream Catchers Live Richer with the Budget Nista. And there are almost half a million women and some men in that group, but it's a place to go when you're like, I don't know what to do. And there are financial experts and educators in that group, but also just a ton of peers. So as you share your financial hardships, you will find encouragement, you will find empathy, you will find instruction, direction, and you'll just find like, just like an amazing group to be a part of. And so it's a, it's a great tool alongside the book. The book is Get Good With Money, 10 Simple Steps to Becoming Financially Whole. The timing couldn't be better. Tiffany, tell everyone where they can find you if they want to learn more and how they can connect with you. So you can get the book at the title, getgoodwithmoney.com. And you can find me, The Budget Nista, literally everywhere on on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. I'm on TikTok, although I don't TikTok because my 14-year-old stepdaughter refuses to teach me. I'm TheBudgetNista.com. But yes, I hope to see you on the Get Good With Money journey. I cannot wait to help you become financially whole. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Tiffany Aliche, The Budget Nista. That's a wrap. As you guys know, one of my favorite things about podcasting is taking the time to learn about someone and interview them. You know what is also just as fun? Actually being a guest on someone else's podcast. Recently, I was on Ordinary Sherpa with Heidi Dusak. She describes her podcast this way. She says, after exploring the world and embracing adventure, often in my teens and 20s, I realized the shift to motherhood and a professional career was threatening the amount of adventure that showed up in my life. Ornay Sherpa is a great podcast, and I had such a fun conversation with her. I decided to share a little with you here today. This is a clip of me and Heidi on Ordinary Sherpa. Take a listen. I hope you enjoy. How do you introduce yourself now? Do you still introduce yourself as a doctor or do you try to lead with the communicator aspect of your life? I think it's really fun when people ask you what you do to say I'm a podcaster or I'm a blogger, (laughs) Uh, not because I truly make a huge living out of doing those things, but it's just fun to see people's faces light up. The truth of the matter is, in our COVID world, I don't meet a lot of new people. (laughs) But the the other truth, I guess, is that Nowadays, I meet people who are much more in line with my identity and purpose. So 
I found that when I was part of the physician world, I didn't really make lots of friends because I don't know if I really felt like I fit. Once I discovered personal finance and podcasting and blogging, I started going to these meetings and get togethers and I didn't have to explain who I was because they kind of already knew by fact that I was at this get together. So I would say I do this podcast and I write this blog and I didn't really have to explain away the physician part the way you think I would have. I guess it's kind of what happens when your purpose, identity and connections all start aligning. Mm -hmm. That need to explain yourself kind of disappears. It sounds like your understanding and definition of connection has gotten much deeper since you've removed this identity of doctor, per se. Would that be a correct assumption that connection means something different now than it had previously? It definitely does. I mean, I was trying to find purpose and identify myself in a world that didn't fit. And so I didn't naturally make those connections. Why didn't I hang out with my colleagues? Why wasn't I going to the physician's lounge? Even now, I can count my number of doctor friends on one hand. And yet I spent, you know, decades doing this for a living. I think connection naturally flows from identifying what is your purpose in life and embracing your own identity. And when you do that, you find yourself in situations in which it's naturally part of the process where you connect with other people. I've made more friends in the last two or three years since I left medicine than I did throughout medical school and residency, which is a very social time where you're meeting lots of people. Yeah. Talk about your kids for just a second. I think sometimes we as parents want to have the best life for our children. I'm curious when you made this shift, how that relationship not only shifted, but what do you dream for your children now? I think as a child, you sometimes want to please your parents. I'm curious how that connection shifted as you've been on this journey now for a couple of years. Is that connection any different or is that uh, identity of what you envision your children doing or being when they grow up any different? I think what's changed is I dream for my children to feel the sense of freedom that I feel at this point in my life. I really felt very locked into my profession and into even the importance of making money for maybe the first 20 years of adulthood. I think my kids hopefully can learn a little from my experience and see that if they're intelligent with their money and if they use some planning and think about things carefully, they can either start living kind of their passion and identity immediately as they get into the workplace or at least plan very well so that they spend five or 10 years maybe working at a career that doesn't fit them like being a physician didn't fit me and then can transition to a little bit more of a free lifestyle where they can pursue what they're interested in and find out really who they are. That's the magic spot, right? Is when our kids can find that space of being comfortable and being themselves so can you talk just through what are you, you talked about your communicator kind of role and podcasting. Do your kids listen to your podcast? How does that connection play out now? What are the things you're creating as a family to move forward? So my kids do listen to my podcast. In fact, my son is my podcast editor. He's 16 years old and he has found a way to edit my podcast. My episodes are, you know, 50 minutes to an hour, and he can somehow edit them in like 45 minutes. He plays it on triple speed. It's the most amazing thing. And one of the really fun parts about that is that he 
has heard hundreds and hundreds of hours now of talk about personal finance and financial independence and what makes you happy about things like building businesses, about real estate. He really, as a 16-year-old, has gotten his own little group of educational seminars on finance. So we have all sorts of interesting conversations about that. And I think my family is into this idea of seeing me happy and engaged and doing something that I feel is very worthwhile and important. So I think that becomes part of our whole family plan. It's kind of what we do. We each have our roles. My wife is still working. I do the podcast and write. My kids are busy at school, but we have kind of these joint goals for ourselves as a family. And I think part of that, again, is is being engaged in our life and having the right intentions and enjoying the here and now. Awesome. Yay, thank you. That was a great interview. Thank you. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, your story is really fun and interesting and good. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I tied the story mm-hmm. to all the great content yeah. that you yeah. presented throughout the book. Um, no, this just is by, by far one of the best interviews I've had. Because sometimes, you know, they're either... You know, the same old questions like, so tell us some credit tips. But no, it's such a great way to weave in. Or... We talk about all the stuff and at the end, they're like, oh, the book. I'm like, the interview was supposed to be, you know? So no, this was great. Thank you. You are a great interviewer. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the book. I, I read it cover to cover. And uh, Okay, thank and, you. Uh, it was definitely a good read. And I wish you a lot of awesome luck. I don't think you need me wishing you luck, but uh, <laughs> keep up the great work. It's awesome. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.